This is Sound Only, a ringer podcast about the 1995 anime TV series Neon Genesis Evangelion, now streaming on Netflix. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. We're your Sound Only co-hosts, here to record our deepest, darkest, most passionate analysis about one of the greatest TV shows ever made. If you're already a fan of Evangelion, by all means, welcome. We're going to have some fun. We're going to have some familiar conversations. Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend, like, retweet, subscribe, everything. If you're new to Evangelion, by all means, relax. We're going to take things slow. We're going to patiently explain some wonky sci-fi terms and startling plot developments. You know, we're, we're all going to just marinate in the LCL. We'll get to uh, what LCL we'll means explain what later. The LCL yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> We've got six podcast episodes to cover a 26-episode TV series. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, but we're going to take it slow. We're going to relax. We're going to work through the TV episodes in batches. Uh, we're going to cover the end of Evangelion series finale, movie two, and our final episode of Sound Only. But first, in our debut episode, I suppose we should explain what Neon Genesis Evangelion is and why we tricked Bill Simmons into letting us ramble about a 24-year-old TV anime series on the Ringer Podcast Network. On Friday, it will be time to get into the fucking robot. Netflix started streaming two classic anime titles near and dear to my and my colleague Justin Charity's hearts. The 1995 TV series Neon Genesis Evangelion and the 1997 theatrical film conclusion to the TV series The End of Evangelion. Charity, this is a very complicated show. Um convoluted would be the better word. Yeah, it's not that complicated. It's, it's like, it just gets It gets very, weird. it gets very strange. So, I mean, like, well, can you give us the, I mean, like, what's the premise in a nutshell, would you say? Well, I mean, it's just the story of a boy, Micah. It's the story, <laughs> Evangelion is the story of a boy, Shinji Ikari, who struggles violently and rather awkwardly to become a man. It's, it's like a tale as old as time. It's a tale as old as like Telemachus in the Odyssey. <laughs> exactly. You know, just just being being young and confused and horny and having stuff that you have to do is... Um, well, I mean, well, yes, but I think the problem or the, the, the sort of twist here is that since Ava is a late 90s TV anime, um, Shinji's struggle to become a man is alternatively Shinji's struggle to pilot a giant weaponized robot in order to defeat a succession of monsters attacking Tokyo. Uh, and the giant robot is the titular Evangelion. And there are multiple Evangelions. Adding to that, Evangelion is a post-apocalyptic story, and the planet has been ravaged by supernatural disasters. Uh, Tokyo has been rebuilt. And so Tokyo in this story is actually henceforth known as Tokyo 3. Shinji is one of five Evangelion pilots, including the subdued, mysterious goth Ray and the angry German redhead Asuka. But we're going to be spending a lot of time with Shinji. Um, so I guess we should talk about what kind of character Shinji, like how would you describe Shinji? We have to be square with listeners, right? Listeners who are coming to this show for the first time. We gotta be, we gotta keep it real with you. 
Shinji is kind of a whiny piece of shit. And I we love him. <laughs> we love Shinji We Ikari. love Shinji Ikari. We love to see it. We, we love, love to see we, him. We would love to see that, wouldn't we, Jackie? But the we thing is- We love to see like, Shinji Ikari, but he is- he is a so annoying. <laughs> he's very annoying, but like this show, part of the brilliance of this show, right, is that. But I mean, like, so were you when you were fourteen, probably. Right, that's it. Yeah, that's basically exactly. it. This is a show that requires Shinji Ikari, our protagonist, to be a hero. But the show has a sort of honesty about how teenage sci-fi, you know, how teenagers would really behave in a sci-fi premise like this, and so the show really goes to great lengths to make Shinji as whiny and annoying as the viewer can can tolerate. And it's it's actually quite an admirable characterization of this kid, but it does take a few episodes to to get used to how much like sobbing and yelling he does. Yeah, it's um I mean just so much so much depends on him just getting into the fucking robot every week. <laughs> And I mean, like, it could mean that, like, you know, the end of everything if he doesn't do it. But, you know, what does you know how like on on the weekend, like you you're trying to go out. Right. And like you take forever to get ready Mm -hmm. and it's a whole ordeal. That's kind of that's kind of Shinji's relationship to getting in the Evangelion in most episodes where it's just like it takes him a minute to really pull it together, to really pull it together, to get in the giant robot, to save everybody including his loved ones from getting killed. Yeah, and he faces the that sort of obligation, again, like we were saying, like very, very realistically, um, you know, like questions why he has to do it at all, um, eventually acquiesces, but isn't really sure why he's doing it, um, you know, and approaches it with very, a lot of fear and trembling. Um, which is uh, kind of, but anyway, how did all of these characters, Shinji, Rei, Asuka, get, you know, recruited into this premise? There is one of a few shadowy and frankly shitty organizations. The main organization we're following in the show is called Nerve. Um, and Nerve is led conveniently enough by Shinji's father, Gendo Ikari, who is a scientist, but also a paramilitary commander, um, who has participated in the creation of these Evangelion units and is sort of, he ends up leading the fight against the angels, which are attacking Tokyo 3. But the angels are like these large, really strange, fractal looking alien beings that are just kind of stomping around Tokyo looking for something. Um, yeah, they're they're it, it's funny because like a lot of a lot of action cartoons will have, you know, especially a lot of like 90s action cartoons will have a monster of the week kind of deal going on. Um, but Evangelion gets weird because, you know, the first few monsters are they're odd and ugly looking and they're all big and massive and they're attacking. And it's it's a very, you know, Godzilla kaiju type situation. But they're not exclusively giants. Like, you know, as we progress in the series, there will be different kinds of angels that um, that harass Nerve and harass Tokyo and harass the Ava pilots in, in different ways. But for now, let's just think of them as giant monsters attacking the city. Right. With, without an actual 
clear motive. Um, I think that like it's you kind of see like in the in the first episode the way that they just kind of plod around and the movements that they make are very deliberate and yeah, it's like a lot of roaring and stomping and thrashing and you know they're attacking the city and we should say that in the beginning before we even are introduced to like what the Evangelion is and again we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be patient with explaining a lot of this stuff but in the beginning of the show um, you actually are witnessing a battle between. One of the one of the first angels and the military, the the Japanese strategic self defense force, and one thing that's quickly established in the show is that you can shoot tank shells all you want at the angels. They you can fire missiles. Yeah, they kind of <laughs> cycle through their entire arsenal in about five yes. seconds, and right, it and, is and has, you can inconvenience, you can irritate the angels, and you can sort of. By time. It's kind of basically that, that, you know what? Let's just let's just say that they shot the equivalent of a nuke at its face and it like turned around like, did somebody leave a window open? I felt a breeze. It wasn't right. like, they are largely indestructible. There's a reason that uh, the Evangelion units are the real weapon that Nerve has to deploy against these angels and why the pilots, including Shinji Ikari, are crucial to defeating the angels and why you can't just sort of send all of the Call of Duty franchises combined to to storm the angels and shoot them to death in a conventional manner. Right. So the Evangelion units uh, are piloted by teens for anime reasons, but also for spoiler reasons. <laughs> yeah, we will get into why this premise requires teenagers, seemingly random teenagers, to pilot these really deadly, dangerous robots. Uh, later, we will get into that in later episodes. But we should... <laughs> I'm sorry, this amuses me to no end. God damn it, we're really talking about this we're show. We're really talking about the um, show on the podcast. It's funny. Okay, so what? And one thing I would establish for listeners, actually, is like, we're, we're just describing a lot of the premise of the show before we get into the first episode. Just because, again, we, wanna, we want you to have a sense of who these characters are, what the premise is, Obviously, if you've watched the show before or if you're watching the show on Netflix and then coming to us for commentary afterward, you'll have a sense of this setup from the first episode. But yeah, we just want to set the table because I think Micah and I in doing this podcast, we really want to bridge the divide between, God, the, the people who have talked to us about this podcast and are obsessed with Ava and have been obsessed with Ava like as long as I have. So since like 2002. It set the table for those people as well as people who are coming into this kind of cold maybe and like are watching it on Netflix for the first time because it's, you know, the show went out of print for a long time. It's had, it's it's been tough to watch the original Evangelion TV like, series. It's basically like, it, and as in went out of print, I mean like as in you can't even, you couldn't buy even Blu-ray DVDs of it. You had to find it on, you know, websites of questionable legality um yeah and yeah. you know like it's it's been it's essentially what i did because like as we're talking about bridging the the gaps between the different types of fandoms of the show while charity has been on this since 2002 he kind of beat my door down about it like last year like so um and i've only just like i'm i'm relatively new to the series, but love it nonetheless. That's very much why we wanted to do this podcast. It's we are two different generations of Ava fans who are converging 
<laughs> Converging in your ears. Converging in your ears. Converging in your ears. Oh, man. <laughs> we describe Shinji as annoying, a little annoying. Here's the thing about Shinji Akari, and it's the thing that makes him a really easy-to-make-fun-of protagonist, but also, I think, a very impressive protagonist, is that he, for the fact that he's been given this premise of, hey, man, you're we're going to give you this giant robot and you're going to use it to save people. You're going to use it to save the world. And the robot has guns and it has a knife and it's really big and purple and it's cool. And man, aren't you just psyched to be able to kick like random monster ass each week in this Evangelion unit? You would think that that is how a lot of teenagers would react to being asked to pilot the Evangelion. But Shinji Akari, our protagonist, our hero, Shinji Akari, very much does not want to pilot the Evangelion. He wants nothing to do with any of this. He is understandably terrified by the prospect of being disemboweled by a giant, ruthless monstrosity. He does not want to die. And you will hear Shinji Akari talking a lot about not wanting to die throughout the entirety of the series. Shinji's core quality up front is that he just does not want to be here. This is not even a sort of, you know, I feel like if you take somebody like Luke Skywalker, right? You take all of these these characters, these classic heroes, journey characters, you know, the part where they, the refusal of the call, right? Where they're, they're sort of like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Like this show takes the refusal of the call and instead of having it be something that, is the character just sort of overcomes once the script is like, it's time to go, man. Shinji is always giving voice to the refusal of the call. And that is his character. And it creates a lot of the, the, the tension and conflict in this character. The show isn't romantic about like bravery, I guess. It's, it's more so that like it is expounding upon the idea that the times when you are terrified are the only times that you can actually be brave. And more That's so deep, to that Michael, end, wow. like... Deep, <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> you sound like Drake at the fucking Raptors game. What? <laughs> All I know is I want the chips <laughs> with the dip. I want my chips oh my with God. the dip, though. Continue, continue. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, what I was saying is that, like, he is scared shitless most of the time. And... Uh, the way that, like, anime generally treats, like, giant mechs and super robots kind of, like, power fantasies and these nice ideas about, you know, like, we can get by with help from our friends and whatnot. But Ava makes the experience of piloting, piloting these things extremely lonely. And, like, it's not really so much that they're more powerful as they are more vulnerable to everything that happens and they can take more punishment. So yeah, lighthearted show, really chill stuff. <laughs> yeah, really chill shit. The Avas being these massive instruments of vulnerability uh, really plugs into Shinji's character being as as reticent and fearful and and traumatized as as he is from like the first frames of the show. <laughs> yeah, um, but that's. One of the very basic important things about Shinji Akari as a protagonist is that he, among other characters who we'll introduce later, 
Um, he's one of several characters who transform what is otherwise, right, this this very childish sci-fi premise into a startling meditation on, like, adolescence and adulthood and failure and malaise and depression <laughs> and, and exhaustion <laughs> and interdependence <laughs> and self-determination. Um, but, but that's the thing. It's, it's right. No, it's, it's, very, solo. <laughs> it's You know what it is? It's, yeah. it's the teen vomit. It's the teen vomit of all the emotions simultaneously. Yeah, it's the, it's the, old, um, it's the old teen bile, you know? Right. Right, and the 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 Ava is not an expression of those emotions so much as it's it's. Well, it's more so like a meditation on them, right? Like, uh... well, it's. I'll put it like this: so the Ava, right? The Ava is this big hulking robot, and the way that you know, pretty, it's pretty conventional. But the way Shinji and the other pilots interface with it is by sitting in the cockpit. Um, but the, you know, over time, we'll go through this with the series, but over time, you do start to see that cockpit as a place of meditation. It's not just a sort of, it's not like looking at somebody in uh, an 80s war flick, you know, sitting in the cockpit of a fighter jet. Like the Ava cockpit is not, again, it's not a, a seat of power. It is very much... Uh, it's like a place of meditation. And that's the way visually and thematically the show frames a lot of the the getting in the fucking robot, as it were, right? It's, it's, Shinji, it's Shinji and the other pilots sitting in a seat that puts them in this very closed off, very lonely, very literally dark place while while violence is happening all around them and at them. It's it's sort of, think of it like a sensory deprivation tank that makes you feel everything way more intensely. Again, like it, to, to, to shorten what you said, just like, it's not a seat of power, it's a seat of like, it's, a, it's actually a seat of vulnerability. It's just like, you are essentially, functionally more powerful, but emotionally and mentally way more vulnerable to everything. It's framed as the place where you 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 get in your feelings. That's that's very much how the show frames the Evangelion cockpit is the, the cockpit is the into in in my it's the in 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 my feelings. Um, yeah, it's you it are is, in your feelings. Yeah. You know, but otherwise all that stuff aside, I mean it's a really simple, exciting, youthful, fun, bright, cheery action show. And it sounds simple enough, right? Like teens fight monsters to save humanity, right? I feel like that's simple enough. Yeah, teens fight monsters to save humanity. It's just that the 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 spaces in between the you know, it's sort of like if you had if if it was a Superman movie that was like 95% about Clark Kent. It's more so about like how would you deal with being an alien walking around in a world made of cardboard or, you know, like, how do you, how do you, how do you in the weeks in between fighting off the monsters, gear yourself back up to do it again? That's exactly right. There are two reasons why we're doing this podcast, right? We clearly both love this show and are desperate to talk about it and think that it is a rich text think that there's a lot to discuss. We recognize that there is a robust Evangelion discourse that has endured 
through decades um, <laughs> of this show, sometimes not even being easily legally available for people to watch. So part of why we're talking about this show now is because Netflix came along and got the distribution rights to the show, and it has opened the show up to a new audience, which we hope will watch the show for the first time or maybe be watching the show for the 10th time in their lifetime. Um, but I think the other part, obviously, why we're watching the show is because we have very deep feelings about it. <laughs> and considering yeah, how simple the premise is, <laughs> yeah, it's like considering how simple the premise is and how cartoony I think the show can sometimes be when it's trying to take it easy on the viewer. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a one of the characters has a pet penguin. We'll get to that yes. later. Oh, God, yes. Pen yeah. pen, yes. <laughs> um, but Ava is this show that presents itself, simply enough, as an action-packed cartoon, uh, you know, which doubles as a teen drama. Uh, but then it, it transforms very gradually, very seductively, I would say, into a much more bizarre, startling, and painful meditation on like, human relationships and human connection. And it is a show that I think, unlike a lot of other television and movies, and even a lot of other anime, even a lot of other prestige anime, I'd go so far as to say, Ava can feel almost offensively insightful at times. It can feel like it's dragging you. Yeah. I, like <laughs> it's, show, I think really? are, it feels as though sometimes that you are being, that is exactly right. Like you're being dragged behind it. Like Ava makes you at times like feel naked and not in a fun way. <laughs> like it accuses the characters of uh, like dysfunction and cowardice and, you know, just like wanting self-destruction and you, it, you know, by proxy, kind of also accuses you of those things. If relatability is this, is this sort of quality, is this millennial quality in a lot of things that sort of millennials latch onto for why a a piece of art is good or compelling, um, I would I would describe Ava as is just offensively relatable. It's it's relatable in ways that you're just like, oh my God, I can't take it. Like like, it's just like I feel too seen. Like yeah. it's yeah. Why am I like this? <laughs> why are these characters like this? And why do I recognize myself in so many of them? Who do you and think I th you are? I am. <laughs> I think this is true. I mean, I, I'm i going to, this sounds, probably sounds like way too hysterical or something. I don't know. In my case, it's because I watched this show when I was 15. Um, and I, I definitely think that you can come to this show as an adult and be impressed by it. In fact, I, know other people, including other critics, other journalists who have come to this show at a much later age than I came to it. And again, their perspective is different because it's different when you're watching this as a teenager, when you are not used to being personally attacked in the way that this show will. But um, yeah, I think a lot of the insights about these characters, both the, the teenage characters and the adult characters... I, I think they really endure and that it's a show that you can revisit at later points in life where it, you know, it, it, do, it doesn't really matter what point of, of life you come into this show. I think it's, you know, the insightfulness of the show is not really contingent on, oh, well, I was a kid when I watched it and it seemed smart. There are definitely a lot of stuff that seemed smart when I was a teenager that I would revisit or have revisited and thought, Oh, okay, this was good for when I watched it or when I read it. 
Uh, and Ava, Ava's smarter than that. Ava's smarter than that, and it, it cuts deeper than that. It vibrates on a frequency that is like you, you at at the at whatever age you come at, you come to it at. It's not like you will have it, like in your life, will have it figured out. Like so, therefore, you will always be able to connect with it. Um, I think to your point about like critics coming to it at different ages, um, especially like me coming to it at 26 uh, versus you coming to it at 15. Uh, I mean, like if you are lost, you are going to be able or if you are at any in any way lost, you're going to be able to relate to it. Yeah, I actually saw somebody sent me a really good, succinct tweet about Ava and why it just persists. It persists despite all of the commercial factors and despite the passage of time. It persists as this series that hooks a lot of people. And it's it's a tweet from user Porntagonist. Shouts out. Shouts out <laughs> to Porntagonist. Porntagonist. Shouts out to Porntagonist. Big tweeted, large up. Boy, big large up. Who tweeted, Ava will always always make its way to lost 15-year-olds who will latch onto it extremely personally. That's a bar. That's a bar. That's it's a bar. true. It's true. Uh, and even if you don't, that's the thing, even if you don't relate, like I, I also, it's funny that I introduced the term relatability into the conversation because I, I fucking hate the cult of relatability. <laughs> I hate Drake. Get, you hate most things. Me. Let's I hate. Fair. I actually hate those. I hate that way of thinking about a lot of art and a, certainly like a lot of commercial art. Um, and I, I will say that even if you don't relate You mean that to like the, as in like not being able to see the value in something if you can't see yourself yeah, in it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Or sort of reducing a lot of art to um, this is good because I feel seen by it. There, mm-hmm. There is sort of a tyranny of narcissism that operates behind. Okay. 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 All right. Relatability. But the, again, like whenever Drake's next album is out, we'll talk about that. But <laughs> even if you don't relate to the characters in the extreme in the way that I'm describing and that you're describing, you know, you're still watching in these 26 episodes, the total psychological collapse of these characters who are all initially pitched to you as nineties cartoon action heroes. And there is something about how the show pulls that off. And again, it pulls it off in this very gradualistic, seductive way where you kind of, God, I mean, I'm on, we're on episode one and I'm going to compare it to Infinite Jest where it's like you get to the end of Infinite Jest and you feel like you've been like shit out of something. <laughs> and it's sort of that's that's kind that's you where we're like headed. Shit that shit out other shit like it's or the shit that other shit shit out. Excuse me. Right. But the, and, uh, and this you, is a show that begins with like sunlight and giant robots and you know, you know loud it's, like you know the 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 pleasant din of like cicadas in the distance and yeah. shimmering oh, water it's like it's it's great you know we're making it sound extremely pretentious and it is but oh it know, is like, it's totally pretentious yeah, Get out like, of here. yeah. <laughs> we're pretentious it's pretentious uh very important very pretentious yeah but, but i mean like it's very the director of the show uh, Hideaki Anno, um, who also directed uh, the better Godzilla movie of 2016, Shin Woo! Godzilla. Yes. Let's put some respect on his name. Yes. He says he made the show at, you know, the depths of his clinical depression. And it'll be, like, impossible to ignore that 
the as you know like as the show um marches inexorably on <laughs> right yeah it's just so there's so much worth talking about like this is definitely this is more in this is a an opinion i think that you hold more closely but i mean like tv the tv anime is just more ambitious and impressive and influential than a lot of western tv critics are prepared to grapple with yeah, that that's like the weird thing about this show is that it, it's very smart. And I think a lot of very smart people have seen it before. And, you know, they there's smart writing about this show. There's smart podcasting about this show. And yet it feels like even this, even one of this, the most like celebrated and also pretentious anime series of all time exists in a way that's just totally walled off from other conversations about television. In a way that, I, you know, I think I used to be way more frustrated about this when I was, like, only slightly younger than I am now. About the, the, the divide between, like, Western TV criticism and the age of prestige TV and peak TV. And their sort of refusal to incorporate what I think to be at least, like, the smarter TV anime into the mainstream critical discourse. Um, and it, I think a lot of why it strikes me as strange is because I don't think film critics have this problem so acutely, right? Like, plenty of film critics can tell you about Miyazaki movies and Takahata movies and Yuasa movies compared to the number of, like, top-tier TV critics who have anything to say about, like, an Ava or a Cowboy Bebop or an Utna, you know? Uh, and I think it, it's it's... It's slightly frustrating, but it's less frustrating now that we have a podcast <laughs> where we can ju- we can just do it. We can just talk about it. We'll talk about it. Everyone else is off the hook because we got this podcast and we got to fucking talk about it. They're all these years. Uh. <laughs> but I do want to say that is you know I those distinctions between anime criticism and Western television criticism exist. I do think that there are a lot of great anime critics and anime podcasts who are within the fandom have like for years done lots of great writing and thinking about Ava. Uh, You know, I'm, we're making an Ava podcast and yet I personally am looking forward to other Ava podcasts that (laughs) are coming out. I'm looking (laughs) forward to I'm looking forward to a lot more writing and stuff to listen to and watch about it. Um, I, I mean, like it's, we're very excited that the show is, is going to become of like readily available to a lot of people. Um, yes. it's, it's, it's going to be big. It's going to be big indoor plumbing. It's going to be big. Oh my God. Here we go. <laughs> um, so yeah, we've, I feel like we've cleared a lot of the, the context and pretext for our being here out of the way. Um, you know, I will say that as much as there is a lot of great writing and thinking about Ava already, because it's a more than 20-year-old show, I think we are going to use this podcast to challenge some of the conventional wisdom, you know, some of the the tropes that have formed around Ava over the years uh, within anime fandom, within anime criticism. I think specifically we're going to challenge some some of the perceptions of Shinji, some of the perceptions of the show's female characters, perceptions of the religious symbolism in the show. There's a lot of religious symbolism. And then there was a period, I feel like, when Ava fans forever 
We're sort of arguing over the level of significance of that symbolism. We're going to talk about the director, Anno, and we're certainly going to argue about the series finale. But yeah, with all of that out of the way, now we're going to step, I think, into episode mode. You know, on this intro episode, we're just going to work through the first two episodes of Ava, Angel Attack and The Beast. They give a pretty straightforward, succinct illustration of the core conflict between Nerve and the Angels going forward. This show opens in broad daylight. Uh, It opens with these wide establishing shots over Tokyo. And Tokyo looks uh, a little fucked up. It's not Tokyo that you know and love. A lot of cockeyed buildings that have fallen halfway to the ground. Um, A lot of of natural overgrowth. Um, You know, there's... Like, picture basically what Chernobyl looks like now, and that's what Tokyo looks like in the first. you're doing there. That's good. You're leveraging off of another popular thing to get us back you, to Ava. Look Chernobyl, at that. Ava. Even but when yeah. I don't know, I be knowing, you know? You do be knowing, though. Um, overgrowth, fucked up buildings, and strangely enough, there is a highway. along. It's like an oceanside highway lined with tanks with countless tanks, dozens and dozens of tanks. And they're aiming at the water. And there's a monster in the water. And the monster is very large. And one thing that's going to be really fun about this show, Micah, is that with each of these episodes, we're going to have to describe the angels. And the angels never really look similar to one another. And they always look weird. And so coming up with terms to describe what the angel looks like is going to be funny. I I will call Satchiel, which is the angel in this episode, the first monster that we Mm -hmm. see in Evangelion. He's like the double-breasted suit monster. <laughs> he has like giant <laughs> double-breasted suit. You know, it looks like oh if a God. double-breasted it's, suit was actually, a monster. He actually does look like he's in a zoot suit. He's, uh, in, like a, it's, he's in a zoot suit with the wild shoulder pads. <laughs> and like it's but also he's wearing like the sleep no more mask. Yeah. It's very yeah. it's 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 a very strange design. Um yes. it is he is like a, a lot of these angels just look like brutal architecture come to life. Yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, that, uh, he, he is a, a, a hunchback giant with shoulder pads. He's swimming through the water and the moment he surfaces, there's like a splash and the tanks fire. There are helicopters that appear, uh, and just start lobbing missiles and, and shooting all their guns. They're unloading their ammo on this giant monster. We have no idea what the hell is going on. Um, but Tokyo is under attack by a giant zoot suit. Now, like while while this is happening, um, <laughs> Shinji is with his, you know, wearing his backpack and carrying his duffel bag. Is yes, at a he's like phone. in a school uniform. He's, he's like in this, a school this uniform. Awkward boy in a, in school a war uniform. zone. Right, just, just walking around alone. <laughs> just walking around alone in a war zone. Uh, he pulls out a photo of. Uh, <laughs> of, he pulls out an OK Cupid photo. Just yeah, he, co- he pulls out a, he pulls out an OK Cupid photo of Masato uh, Katsuragi, um, who was supposed to be there to pick him up. Apparently, like, can we talk what? about? Yeah, th- this is one of the weird things. So, Shinji is a kid, and he's walking around Tokyo in what is about to be a conflict area because he's looking for this woman named Masato Katsuragi, who he hasn't met. 
if I'm not mistaken, he's never met Masato. All he has is the photo. And and Masato has the photo. She, you know, Masato has a far more professional photograph of Shinji. Whereas Yeah, like um, it's it's on a it's on a clip uh, on the top of a manila yeah, folder. Right. And it's, it's like, it's like a, yeah. what a lawyer would it's have. It's a passport right? photo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Whereas yeah. Shinji's photo of Masato is like a cheesecake postcard photo of Masato, which creates this very bizarre. It, it sets up a lot of things, frankly, for later in the series. But just in that introductory moment, it creates this bizarre sense that Shinji and Masato met on a dating website, which feels <laughs> inappropriate. Uh, Considering the fact that he is a teenager and she's by all, you know, she's an adult. She's an adult. Right. Ish. Yeah. Person. Yeah. Like, and, and I mean, like, she pulls up. Uh, she 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 whips up and with the with the, with the hater blockers on. Oh yeah, but she's in a car. Describe the car. She's okay. in a car. She she's, has a Renault Alpine blue yeah. ass car. Uh yeah, I mean like she, it's 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 a like she's got a she's got a sports car. She's wearing driving gloves and a cocktail dress. She's the only person on the road. Shinji is the only person out on the sidewalks. They're trying to find each other, and meanwhile. The angel, the monster, the zoot suit monster, <laughs> Satchio, uh, is fucking shit up. And things are getting violent outside. And by the time Satchio has, you know, withstood all of this artillery from the Japanese military and started unleashing his own attacks, his own counterattacks against Tokyo 3 and started knocking shit over, Masato finally pulls up and finds Shinji and is like, hey, kid, hop in. She, I wish she says like, "Am I real late?" She she does some like Harrison Ford shit. It's pretty, like it's it's it's, it's very it's very like Angelina Jolie picking up yes. James McAvoy and, and heavy wanted, Angelina Jolie, heavy energy. Angelina Jolie. And she's like, "Kid, get in the car." And Shinji's like, "Yes, ma'am." <laughs> you know, it's very <laughs> Shinji's like a good boy at this point. Masato doesn't really explain a ton at first, but Masato's job is to drive Shinji. To meet his father, um, which which sounds like maybe is not like you know at face value that seems like you could be it doing. It seems like a things. very normal. Th- it seems like a normal thing to be doing in a it, crisis, it seems, though. Yeah, right. Yes, it's like yeah. listen, I'm taking to your father, but Masato taking Shinji to his father involves Masato taking Shinji to a secret underground facility, a military complex that happens to be where the organization Nerve is... Well, Nerve, as well as the Japanese military, are coordinating their offensive campaign against the Angel. It's the command center where they house the AVA units. At first, it's just regular military personnel fighting the Angel. But again, Shinji and Masato are in the car. The Angel is fucking up Tokyo, making it very dangerous to be outside. Uh, and but while Masato is driving Shinji to the base where his father is, the Japanese military decides to drop an N2 mine, which is basically a nuke on the Angel, right? So they're sort of escalating the attack. They they see that all of their guns, all of their missiles aren't working, so they just drop a giant explosive right on the thing's head. And yeah. it creates like, this huge blast and flips the car over. <laughs> Uh, a, a, few, a huge, a huge blast that flips the car. They essentially, it's an N2 mine. It's basically a nuke. And, you know, like it, again, the, 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 
the angel kind of just feels it like it, you might feel like a strong gust of wind. <clears throat> but it does at least create this this pause, right? It creates a pause where the angel has to recover a bit, like recover its stride. But the angel's not defeated, we learn. So Masato and Shinji resume their journey in Masato's, at this point, very fucked up car uh, to meet Shinji's father in this underground base. We should note that at the beginning of all of this, at the beginning of the hostilities between the Japanese military and the angel, we actually see a cutaway shot to Shinji's dad, Gendo, and Gendo's, let's say, right-hand man, whose name is Fuyutsuki. And they have like a very stern, sparse conversation where Fuyutsuki says, it's been 15 years. <laughs> and Gendo and Gendo. It's been, the angels. Gendo, through through, the through angels class hands. Yeah. Through class hands with 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 the with the threat monitor reflected in his glasses. Yeah. The <laughs> angels the are angels back. Are, <laughs> really the 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 most that you that you see of Fuski and you know, in this in these first two episodes is just him kind of delivering these hust messages to, to Gendo. Yeah. It's very cryptic. The show at the beginning is very cryptic about what all is happening, about what this giant monster is, why it's attacking Tokyo. Uh yeah, it's it's hard Rashomon going on yes. uh, with this show. But eventually, eventually, you know, Masato and Shinji flip. Masato's car over, they get it back on the road, it's beat up, they get to this underground base, and Masato quickly introduces Shinji to his own father, which is like an interesting dynamic, right? It's like, it's the kid's dad. Like <laughs> This the, is your father. <laughs> yeah, this is your father. <laughs> and they're not even in the same room. The funny thing is, like, they, they Shinji's on this, this platform, and Gendo is standing... Wordlessly, like just, wordlessly above him, he's like, yeah. he's like a long way above him, staring down at his son. And you maybe initially think that, oh, Masato's bringing Shinji to his father so that Shinji will be in a safe place while Shinji's father Gendo maybe does his military work or whatever. But instead, little did he know. Yeah, yeah. Little did he know that Gendo needs Shinji to do something. He needs him. Gendo needs Shinji. Gendo needs his son to pilot this giant robot that he has helped build. Uh, the giant robot being called the Evangelion. This particular robot that Shinji is is introduced to being called Evangelion Unit One, and. Gendo is like, listen, he doesn't say it like this because he's an asshole, but I'm going to give him like a weird slick. <laughs> yeah, you're going to give. Yeah, I feel like he you're basically going is to... like, listen, you know, I'm sure you've seen that we tried to fucking blow the monster up outside with missiles and shit and it didn't work. You see this giant robot behind you. I need you to get in it and go kick this thing's ass. And understandably, Shinji's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, no, I no, I don't want to do this. Why would I do this? Um, he he does not react to this with a sense of wonder and a sense of, wow, father, you need me to do this this very wonky sci-fi premise. I would, you know, he's not at all thrilled at any of this. And he's he's clearly very upset that his father only summoned him not to protect him from the carnage outside, 
but rather to deploy him back into the carnage outside. So Shinji refuses. He refuses very dramatically <laughs> to yeah. pilot the Ava. Yeah, he's just like, I'm, yeah, he, he is absolutely not going to do it. Not only is he not going to pilot the Ava, but we really, it's because Shinji says, wait a minute, no. <laughs> we sort of spend a few moments with Gendo. Again, Gendo is standing over Shinji in like a totally different room and he's, he's not like, even talking like, to him, like, Gendo, he's barking Gendo at him. essentially like in a press box. Yeah, like, he's himself. in a press box, right? Yeah. And and he is he is yelling at it, like I mean like takes uh, Shinji's emphatic rejection of his responsibility not like with understanding not like you know oh I I understand that you're scared and our relationship is not the best and I've only called you in here to do this one thing for for me and to and really for us all I'm, I'm heaping this giant responsibility on your shoulders and I am understanding of that his reaction is to get some more bass in his voice. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, if you're not going to do it, then leave. Yeah. But if you're going to do it, then do it now. Yeah, yes. <laughs> like, he's very sparse in how he explains what he even needs Shinji to do. He's sort of, Shinji's like, why did you send for me? And all Gendo can say is, because I have a use for you. Because there is no one else who can. You know, it's very yeah. like, he's, he's being very straightforward about how it's opportunistic very to know. he's being. Right. It's yeah, very neat it's to know, but it's also like, I need to exploit you and I'm going to be honest about the fact that this is exploiting you. And I'm also not going to tell you any anything else about what is even happening. Yeah, here. you basically get the sense that Gendo has forsaken like very crucial parts of his humanity yes. by this point. Yes. And I think additionally... What Shinji's being asked to do in the form of being asked to pilot the Ava, I feel like in a different show, you might think, Gendo is asking his son to get in this robot and do a bunch of cool shit and do a bunch of like, we need you to get in here and just like fight, man. We need you to use all of your unique, awesome skills that you don't actually have to defeat this giant monster. But instead, there's actually a funny thing that one of the other characters who we will talk about a lot in this series, Dr. Ritsuko Akagi, who's sort of the, the lead like scientist character on the scene at this point. She is literally always wearing a lab coat. She's always wearing a lab coat in any circumstance. She could be at like a cocktail party later in this. She's wearing the damn lab coat. But anyway, Ritsuko doesn't describe all of these awesome things that Shinji needs to do to defeat the angel. She actually says to Masato, he just has to sit in the seat. We don't expect more than that. And so that right there in the beginning is like even more than what Gendo is saying in terms of being like, listen, you're my son. I just need you to do this thing or else you can just fuck off. It's really Ritsuko describing the responsibility of piloting the Ava as sort of She's on the verge of describing it as cannon fodder. It's not that she she's implying that Shinji is going to lose to the monster, but she's saying that even if he is brave enough to pilot the Ava, it only really requires so much bravery because all we need him to do is sit there and we'll figure out what to do once he can just sit there. Um, but even that, even the role of sitting there, as Ritsuko unceremoniously describes it to Shinji, Shinji just can't, he can't deal. He's not going to do it. There's there's maybe some very not so subtle 
uh, stuff about, you know, going out into the world on your own and being, you know, like ill-equipped to really do anything. Um, yes. <laughs> except with stand. <laughs> Not only that, being ill-equipped to do anything regardless of the commentary of your parents. <laughs> <laughs> and other adults. And other adults. Um, the, the way that Risco describes it as sitting, it just uh, he just has to sit in the seat is going to be useful to. I mean, like it's an important it's an important detail to note. And it's yeah. also important to note that so we describe the fact that Gendo is standing far above Shinji when he's saying all this. But the adults on the scene here are Gendo, Masato, who's brought him there, and Risco, who's the scientist who's who's tasked with. Explaining more than Gendo is willing to say, certainly. And they're all they're all aligned kind of against Shinji. They have different feelings about Shinji at this point. Masato is definitely the most sympathetic in terms of like, oh man, this guy has like a shitty relationship with his dad. What is going on here? But even Masato is in this position of of like, listen, I, yeah, we kind of need you to pilot the giant robot. So all of the adults on the scene are very much aligned against this kid who knows far less than they know and who is being asked to do way more than the adults are being asked to do. They just do not give a fuck about his feelings. Um, in varying degrees, uh, Masato is the most sympathetic, but she still, again, is just kind of like, hey, you know, get your fucking head in the game. Rei Ayanami. She's the second Ava pilot that we're introduced to. She's basically wheeled into the scene. She's wheeled into the middle of this this confrontation between Gendo and Shinji. And she's on a stretcher. And she is bandaged up like somebody who is on her last leg. And in fact, Gendo informs Rei that it's just her. Shinji's not going to do it. She's clearly half dead. But she tells Rei... You got to get back out there. And she's willing to do it. Like, basically, when she's wheeled in, Ray is, like, using all of her energy to get off of this stretcher. And in the middle of all of this, the angel attacks Tokyo 3 again and creates this massive explosion, and it creates a tremor, creates this underground tremor that knocks Ray onto the ground. It knocks Ray from her stretcher onto the ground, She's even more fucked up because she's already, again, she's like banged up. She's wrapped in bandages and she's shrieking. Like it is an incredibly pitiful scene. Yeah. Yes. Um, she's made yeah. to look very broken. Yeah. Um, she's made to look very broken. But in this moment when the explosion rocks the underground facility, the encased Evangelion Unit 1, which is positioned behind Shinji, lifts its hand up of its own volition over Shinji's head to block the falling debris from falling onto him. It's this startling moment where all of the adult characters are like, why is the thing moving? That's not supposed to happen. It's a robot. Why is it, why is it protecting this boy? What's going on here? And it's the shot that's meant to establish that Shinji Ikari has this fateful connection with Evangelion Unit 1, regardless of whether he wants to pilot it. Also, uh, you know, like, obviously, this leads to him getting in the fucking robot. At this point, Shinji, I don't want to say he reverses course, but he he recognizes the connection between him and this mysterious, bizarre purple robot 
that he's meant as, to step inside of. He, he recognizes it as special and singular and, you know, then like feels the weight of obligation even as he really just doesn't want to fucking do it, man. Yeah, but, but he also he recognizes is, Ray as, as someone he needs to protect. He sees yes. the girl and the bandages on the ground and says, I got to do this. He says specifically, I mustn't run away. I mustn't run away. I mustn't run away. <laughs> His mantra. That's his yeah. mantra. The the Shinji Ikari. By God, that's Shinji Ikari's theme music. <laughs> um, I mustn't run away. Which is like you know, again, like we should just pause here for a second and talk about the. That is like the crux of the way that this show turns the idea of a hero inside out. It's not like, you know, okay, I'll do it. It's I mustn't run away. It's like. It's just that he really is coaching himself when he says it. Too. Yeah. It's he has just, a co- like. It's like, it's not like a hero's creed or anything. He's saying it to tell, he's saying it to kind of trick himself into believing that he mustn't run away. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's telling himself how to feel. Yes. Um, Which is. I guess as far as like, you know, if we're talking about this as an action series, his superpower is being able to tell himself how to feel. Yeah. So he he finally calls out to his father and he says, I'll do it. I'll get in the fucking robot. (laughs) Uh, And he gets in the robot. And actually, so this is kind of funny. This is the first time Shinji gets in Evangelion Unit 1. And strangely, they put him into the robot in this episode in his school uniform, which doesn't happen again. But in this episode, they don't even give him... We'll, we'll talk about the actual uniform that the pilots wear later. Ray is wearing one when she falls off of the stretcher. But Shinji, they just are like, you know what? We, this, we're all about to die. We got to just put this kid in the robot. So he's just in there in his, like, his button-up his shirt. school uniform. His school yeah. uniform, yeah. But otherwise, he's put in this cockpit, this very strange cockpit. And almost like a death trap, they... The scientists flood the cockpit with a yellow liquid, and he's just like, "Are you trying to drown me?" And he sort of he starts to suffocate, and Reitz goes like, "No, just breathe like normal. Like once it gets going through your lungs, it's it, it'll be like breathing oxygen." So the scientists set nerve, submerge. They, they put Shinji in the cockpit. They flood the cockpit with a gross yellow liquid called LCL. We'll talk more about what LCL is later, but basically all of the Evangelion cockpits have to be filled with this substance that sort of mediates the connection between... Because it's not like there are wires. The pilots aren't wired up. There's this incredibly seamless connection between the Ava unit and the pilot where basically whatever the the movements you're making in this wide open cockpit, the, the Ava makes. And so instead of it, Instead of that physical relationship being mediated through wires, it's just mediated through this this liquid. You know, basically, if you've seen, <laughs> by God, I'm going to do it. If you've seen Pacific Rim mm. um, and the way that the two pilots of the Jaegers have to enter the thing called the drift, uh, which is just this kind of like weird uh, mental space that they both inhabit their own consciousness with. And they kind of communicate wordlessly. It's it's essentially the same thing between the pilot and the Ava. So yeah, they put the kid in the robot, and then they they basically they're like, "You sure you want to do this, kid?" 
and Shinji is like, I mustn't run away. <laughs> and they, they, t- and so remember, they're in an underground facility. That's where all of the, the, the nerve command center is based. And that's where the Avas are housed. So they put Shinji in the cockpit and they put him on a launch pad. And the launch pad shoots Evangelion Unit 1 up to ground level, to street level. And immediately, Ava Unit 1 and Shinji Akari are facing off against Sachio at dusk. So he's staring. It's basically like a cowboy shot, right? They're just staring each other down on the street. And you're just sort of waiting for this moment where Shinji's going to step up and be like, all right, I guess he's going to go like punch the angel. What is he going to do? And it's very like, <laughs> I love the fact that like once they've, they finally get the, the Ava up above ground and Shinji's in the cockpit and he's facing down Satchio and, and Ritsuko is just like, just focus on walking. <laughs> yeah. Yes. She says, <laughs> just, just, just walk. Just, just walk. And again, this is and like, then, the angel's not far away. The angel's like two blocks away. It's right. There. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it is, if he is on 42nd street. And the angel is on 50th. Yes. Like it is. And, and he's just like, he, and you know, Ritsuko takes the says first walk. <laughs> yeah. He, Ritsuko says walk. He takes one step forward and everyone is amazed. And then the very next step, he falls down flat on his Trips face. over <laughs> his dick. Just face plants. Just, <laughs> just face, just face plants. plants. Episode one, angel attack ends on the cliffhanger of like, Okay, unit one is above ground. Shinji's in the cockpit. What happens next? And episode two, episode two, the beast um, opens with Ritsuko telling Shinji to just focus on walking. He puts one foot in front of the other and it's great. And then when he swings his left foot forward, the Ava falters and he face plants. Um, so after all that suspense of the the big... Uh, showdown at, at dusk right. between him what, and Seiko. What will Shinji do? Like, will he yeah, meet what the will moment? Shinji do? Yeah. yeah. And he face plants. Uh, and then, you know, it just gets progressively worse because then the angel moves on him and just gets to just beating the brakes off of, of Shinji in this giant robot. Yeah, it, it turns into like a Mike Tyson situation very quickly where it's just... It's like Shinji's are at a disadvantage by the time he's face planted because he's not on sure footing. And also he's demonstrated that he cannot even walk in the Ava. And Sachio, the angel, just starts wailing on him and ragdolling him and just tearing at his limbs. You know, there's one point where he just takes Unit 1's left arm and just twists it until it snaps. And Shinji is like, holy shit, are you kidding me? This is painful. And all Ritsuko can sort of tell him over his earpiece is like, it's oh, not it's, not your, it's your not your arm. real arm. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like, it's just like Ritsuko is like his corner, his his corner coach. And, yeah. you know, like, I can't remember exactly what this what, what movie this is from, but I, I remember there being like one of these things where like, you know, the boxer plops down in, in the seat at the bell and, like, Corco's just like, don't, just stay in there, you know? Like, just bob and weave, bob and weave, he can't hit you. And then, like, the boxer spits out his mouthpiece and goes, he can hit us! We are hurt! We are bleeding! <laughs> that is Shinji Kari in a nutshell, man. That's so, and it's also Ritsuko in a nutshell. <laughs> um... Right. Uh, Ritsuko and her fucking science. We'll get to her later. Oh, anyway, man. Um, yeah, fucking A. But, but and then it gets worse just because Satchiel at, at one point just picks Unit 1 up by the face and starts shooting this laser ramrod from it, its hand into, Shin, into Unit 1's face over and over again. 
in this way that it makes like an awful sound where you're just like, this kid's going to die. Even yeah. though it's funny because the cockpit of the Ava is not in the head. It's, it's sort of in the, it's kind of placed in the spine. But it's just the fact of how the Ava's head is designed. You look at it and you're like, this thing's going to break. Like he keeps, Shinji's not really able to move. He's getting ragdolled. And yeah, the angel at this point is just doing a number of headshots at point blank range on unit one. And the next thing you know, there is a hard cut to Shinji Akari in a hospital bed alone in a quiet room. Uh, And he wakes up and he clearly does not know what happened after the moment I just described. And 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 you will come to find what happens throughout the second episode through a series of flashbacks. But what we should say is that we also, like immediately after this, we see, again, a very concerned uh, Gendo and uh, the, in a, in a, in a very like, Tron looking boardroom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> discussing. All black. Neon. All neon everything. Discussing with a bunch of very important looking people. Illuminati the, people. The, the Illuminati, uh, which is what Sele basically is. Um, kind of like, this is the boardroom of all the people that make the decisions that uh, you know, direct the fate of Tokyo Three, uh, so to speak, and also the really fate of Nerve, to, like the fate, the fate of all of the Nerve, people yeah. under Gendo's the, command. Yeah, we don't really need to explain it more than that, right? This second, right? Um, but they're discussing the return of the angels and something called the Human Enhancement Project. We don't really know exactly what that is. Um, but we are, it, it is going to, you know, they wouldn't, it's not in there for no reason. <laughs> right. It, and it's also notable that <laughs> like toward the end of the conversation, these Illuminati people tell Gendo, like, listen, don't forget the human enhancement project is the most important thing. You know, and they, they refuse to explain what it is to the viewer. They just clarify that it it is a secret project that Gendo is supposed to think of as, as the most important priority in his fight against the angels. And they leave it at that. At this point, yeah, we're still, everything with Shinji, everything with Shinji in the hospital bed and then this meeting with Gendo and the Illuminati, also known as Sele. Um, this happens like after, this, like distinctly after Shinji's first battle with that angel, Sachiel. But we've sort of fast forwarded a bit after Shinji just gets his ass beat and then wakes up in a hospital bed. Right, so um, after that, in the aftermath, Fuski informs Ritsuko about uh, Shinji and Gendo declining to live together um, because it is the natural thing for the two of them. It is natural for father and son to not want anything to do with each other. Yeah, they're um, not on speaking terms. They're not on any terms. Not even, like, a little bit. I mean, like, as in they are walking, like, a... Uh, Misato and Shinji are walking through the nerve building and run into uh, Gendo in an elevator. And there's this really just, I mean, bone-chilling scene where the the elevator door opens and Gendo is on it and Shinji just refuses to get on the elevator and nobody says anything. Yeah, Misato is just like, I guess we're not getting on this elevator. Okay, all right. So this is, this is what the... Yeah, it's it's very very strange. It's sort dynamic. of one of the um, 
we were talking earlier about when Gendo and Shinji are in the same scene together for the first time, that Gendo is standing in a press box, uh, standing in a press box above <laughs> Shinji Ikari. And in this elevator shot that you're describing, there's a similar sort of framing that happens where the elevator door opens. Gendo's in the elevator. M- Masato and Shinji were waiting for the elevator. Um, but they're all being shot from like a, sh- a strange angle from the waist up. And it's one of the sort of visual signatures for Gendo is that Gendo, among all these characters, is always shot from these very intimidating angles that are meant to sort of emphasize the distance between him and Shinji. Um, Yeah, the the art like the the arbitrary nature of his reward and punishment, like the like the unknowable, like what Gendo is thinking at any time is like unknowable to the viewer and to Shinji and to most characters on the show. Yes. And the the it's just there throughout the series there are a lot of great and diverse ways that the the that Anno finds to to visually frame the distance between Gendo and Shinji. Sometimes it's again Gendo being shot like up from the waist in this very long, daunting, intimidating way. Sometimes it's the distance of an elevator door seeming like the distance of an ocean. Um, And sometimes it's like Shinji trailing pathetically behind Gendo, like a sad dog. Um, But yeah, these shots in these first few episodes do a really good job of just visually emphasizing that there is just this great irreconcilable distance between Gendo Akari and Shinji Akari. When Masato learns that uh, Gendo and Shinji are not going to live together and instead that Gendo is just like, yeah, you can have a room that's like, you know, six floors down from this one and, you know, off in the corner of the building um, to yourself. And Shinji's just like, yeah, that's fine. I'll take that. Masato steps up and says that he can live with me. Um, And... You know, Shinji uh, Dooley isn't quite sure how to feel about that. Um, there is a remember they met on a dating website, they met on a weird (laughs) and you have to consider like the pretext for how they met. Where it's like the it is so strange, and the things that like the the when Misato is uh on the phone to Ritsuko talking about the fact that he's going to be taking Shinji in, she makes like this really weird joke about you know, like. Don't worry, I'm not gonna put the moves on him or yeah, anything. Yeah, and it's just like, why would you even say that? Yeah, Masato um, was initially <laughs> presented as a vaguely irresponsible and certainly inappropriate person. Um, yeah. So yeah, Masato. But it's weird because the moment where she volunteers to house Shinji, uh, it is. It's definitely in the first couple of episodes the moment that feels the most like Masato being concerned for Shinji. Because she doesn't, she volunteers to house Shinji because she just sort of thinks, this kid is going to, like, this is a lot for him to process. He seems really sad already. Like, I, I'm not going to let this kid live alone. He does not need to live alone in the midst of all this. And so it's just, it's, if anything, that moment is one of the first moments where Masato really seems to have an emotional insight about Shinji and is taking some very adult responsibility to make sure that he's okay, but she just also makes a point of being inappropriate about it. <laughs> yeah. 
And and then also we see like after we've said all these things about the responsibility that she's the, the, her stepping up to this and everything, we go back to her apartment to find that it is in a state. Yeah, um, it's a man. They, Jesus. It's just like it's so funny that like yeah, her and Shinji go to the grocery store and they get all the stuff to go back. They get a bunch of instant food and they go back to her apartment. And the door opens, and he's just like, damn, bitch, you live like this? Yeah, it's like, there's, true. there's just true. beer cans everywhere yeah. and and takeout containers all over the floor. The, it did, and- the shots of her apartment in the beginning do a really good job of making you sort of fill in the blanks about how her apartment must smell. Frankly, yeah, how her apartment must spell, and also the stage at which she's at in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of like she is also in between adolescence and adulthood. Yeah, and she's like an overachiever at work, right? She's a military officer. She's she's got like real responsibilities and is a very proactive person, but at the expense of having any semblance of an ordered, like like home life. Shinji basically. Um, wants to enter her apartment as like you know a guest like you know and she makes a big point of of being like this is your home now and there's uh i guess the the way that there's a there's a shot of him stepping over the threshold of the apartment and be and saying like you know i'm home and it is uh kind of a a, a weird thing to it, this it's a weird emotional tenor uh to that scene um as is as like his first night in the apartment is very awkward and strange. Yeah. Even the moments when they're just kind of like just quietly sharing each other's company feel like tense in a way. Um even though these are the happier parts of the of the show. Yeah. So far at least. They're the most like yeah, so no far. one's getting headshot moments of the show. Wait, we skipped the penguin, dude. We got to talk about oh, yeah, We did skip the penguin. Okay, so this is the thing. It's like Masato's apartment smells a kind of way, but it also, you know, Shinji enters Masato's apartment. There's beer cans everywhere. Uh, there is a fridge full of beer. There is another refrigerator of sorts, which houses a penguin, which is very strange that <laughs> a woman would own a penguin. It feels like a commentary on climate change or something. I don't know. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, that is actually sort of a thing the show addresses throughout is that uh, a lot of the apocalyptic events that have defaced the earth have created a lot of strange climate changes, which is why uh, Masato lives in Japan and has a pet penguin. Um, yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) it just lives in Japan and has a like Fjordland crested penguin just, just chilling in our apartment. Yep. Yeah, uh, and uh, there is, even, you know, like in an intimate, like, home space, he just kind of creates distance between himself and others, uh, Shinji does. Uh, There's, I mean, like, there is a, the last kind of part of this episode is him lying awake in bed listening to music, which he comes back to. Uh, throughout the series, I mean, music he said, is "Listen like, to music. Describe is... what he's listening to." Because again, we're in the future, right? We're in right. 2019, where I got AirPods. Shizzy doesn't have AirPods. What does he have, Micah? He has a Walkman. He got a Walkman. Like it is, bro. He's got a he's got a Walkman. He's and... listening to Dave Matthews Band on a Walkman. <laughs> 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 and 
and it is, I mean, like, it's his only real means of escape. There's a very, you know, sad scene where Misato says, go take a bath, you know, like, wash away all those bad memories. And in the places where he's meant to relax are the places that he feels the most uncomfortable. He's just like, bad thoughts always seem to find me when I'm in the bath. And so music is his means of escape. And even then, it's just kind of like he's not safe from the bad thoughts anywhere. Right. As he lies uh, lies in bed listening to music, staring at the ceiling, the his battle with uh, Seichiro comes back to him in flashes. For the rest of the battle, the sort of the, the part of the battle of it, that yeah. we didn't see. And uh, what we learn from these flashbacks is that uh, apparently Unit 1 had the hands the whole time. Uh, so after the scene that we see, which is... Uh, the the robot slumped against a building, you know, basically it's life bar blinking danger, comes back to life on its own and takes off doing a cool bunch of flippy twirly moves and starts taking down the angel um, savagely, I might add. It's a comeback, bro. It's like a comeback. Yeah, it's- it is. It is quite a comeback to the point where, like, I mean, this... Unit like uh, Shinji and the robot had this angel so under pressure that it throws up a force an AT field. Uh, we come to learn that it's called. It's not further explained in the first episode. We just know a less that pretentious AT show field. would call it a force field, but yeah, exactly. it's called an AT. It's field, a force field, and we will learn what an AT field is and why it's called that and how it works later. Yeah, but uh, the things that you get from the kind of excited chatterings in the control room as this is happening is that the AT field is something that an angel can create and also something that the Avas can create. And one can apparently erode the other or something. But anyway, what it looks like functionally is the Ava ripping a hole in the angel's shield and, you know, goes back to trying to pound it into a bloody mist. And in the last effort, the the angel wraps itself around the Ava unit and self destructs. Um, that's coward shit, by the way. That's coward. Yeah, that's I mean, coward like, just, shit. Don't pull that on me. <laughs> uh, but the Ava emerges from the destruction, not really, just kind of shrugs it off. Um, you don't really see that it has that much apparent damage. And in that, the except for the fact that its mass falls off, and we see exactly what is underneath it. As uh, like Shinji is just kind of like staggering back towards the nerve facility, the mask of the Ava unit falls off, and he sees the reflection of the Ava's head in the in a mirror, like a, like the mirror facade of an office building. And, like, it is this grotesque kind of, like, humpback whale head that is, you know, just pink and, you know, like, kind of like chicken that doesn't look cooked. It just looks hot and angry. Yeah, yeah. Importantly, and, it doesn't look robotic. It looks organic. Yeah, exactly. It is, it's definitely, it's, 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 uh, so, yeah, like, it is a bioelectronic thing, the Ava unit is. And it's one huge eye opens and like swivels in a really uncomfortable way to look at Shinji directly in the reflection. 
and we just hear Shinji's curdled scream <laughs> as he, you know, like comes back to in bed. And the and the sort of the shot cuts like the shot is basically overhead, and you just you look at Shinji's eye in the dark room. He's on the mattress. He's sort of sprawled out, and his eye is wide open, and he just looks horrified. Like just thinking back over the battle, he looks like what the fuck have I gotten myself into? And then it cuts to black. Yeah. Um, so this was about the the point at which when I was watching it the first time, I was just like, hmm, maybe I'm going to take a break for a couple of days and come <laughs> back to episode three later. <laughs> um, it is a, you are going to, you, you're going to think about that scream for a very long time afterward. Yeah. And also Shinji's going to scream a lot for a long time. A lot. <laughs> a lot. Um, it is. Yeah. Um, but I just, you know, we, we introduced the sort of basic concept of this show up top. We talked about the first two episodes and I think we're going to cut it there for now and pick up. But the next few episodes next week, those first two episodes have the basic conflict of the show. Uh, or at least the conflict loop, the sort of surface level conflict loop of an angel appears, Shinji Akari, Rei Ayanami, some other pilots who will come along later, have to get in their Evangelion units and fight the angel. Uh, that's the conflict. and. You know, like, it seems simple enough, but again, the first couple episodes established that as simple as that is as an action premise, as simple as that is as an action loop, it's much more complicated as an emotional commitment for Shinji. And it's a much more complicated emotional commitment for all of the, basically the people who, for his support system, in so much as you want to call it a support system. The first two episodes more or less explain just how much easier that is said than done. Right. And not just on a level of getting in the robot, but on a level of how do we give Shinji a stable home life? What is Shinji's relationship with his father going to look like throughout this? How do the adults in this situation perceive these kids, Shinji and Rei? Like, are they really just going to, throughout this entire show, regard them as kind of cannon fodder? Um, yeah. those are how the can you hope to be a complete person in a situation where nobody on any side sees you as one? And also, how is this kid Shinji Akari, who is the conscientious objector, like, is he really just going to, again, it, he's, not, he's not this sort of conventional hero where you see him initially resist what he's being asked to do or what his calling is for him to do only to sort of realize that like, oh, there's no other choice. Like, but again, at the end of that second episode, The Beast, Shinji articulates very, very starkly how much he does not like this. Um, And so you, you sort of recognize going into these next episodes that we'll cover next week that he's not cool with this. And there isn't, really immediately a clear way to make him cool with this. And that becomes one of the core sort of complications of the show. We've led with a lot here in this first episode. Um, We've covered the first two episodes of the show. Uh, We're actually going to leave it there. We will pick back up next week. Part of why we wanted to just sort of 
relatively briefly compared to the later episodes of this podcast, cover those first two episodes of the show. It's just so we can establish who Shinji Akari is, who Gendo Akari is, who Masato Katsuragi is, who Ritsuko Akagi is. We want to establish sort of the basics of the show, but even in these first two episodes, there are a lot of things that go unexplained, like what an AT field is, or why does the Ava look like that underneath? Um, <laughs> and yeah, like I said, there's a lot of there's a lot of sci-fi that we're going to work through as patiently and, um, you know, succinctly, as painstakingly. yeah, painstakingly, yeah. <laughs> but also pain-free as we possibly can. Yeah, um, but yeah, like. The stuff that is the stuff that remains mysterious and unexplained by the end of episode two, we will make less mysterious, uh, but sometimes still more inexplicable, frankly, um, as we proceed into episode three and beyond. Ava is a fun show to talk about. It's very pretentious. It's very strange. It goes off the rails. I feel like we've spent a lot of time talking about how it's dark. It's also just very fun. It gets very funny. Um, Teenagers are inherently funny. Adults who have to interact with teenagers are inherently funny. This show has everything you could possibly want. Yes, yes. And all that being said, before you return to episode two of Sound Only, you should probably have watched up to episode seven of uh, Ava. Um, So do that before you come back. But... In the meantime, be sure to, you know, subscribe, like, retweet, tell your friends. If you're going to do it, then do it now. Oh my God. If not, then, I mean, like, look, don't, don't leave. leave. Yeah. Like, like that's something you can't that's, treat people uh, like Gendo. You can't just, you can't them. treat people like that. I, you know, I'm, I was just, I was just trying to be spicy for the people. That's fair. You know I'll tell you what, on a much more optimistic note, I'm going to leave you all with Masato Katsuragi's final words. In episode two, The Beast, her final words to Shinji. You did something very good and very noble today by subscribing to Sound Only on the Recapables feed on the Ringer Podcast Network. You should be proud. Good night, Shinji. Hang in there. Like a cocktail dress. Was it like what was yeah, it? What was it? Like that's you, never explained. They, they at never explained the it. Never. They never explained it. <laughs> Why is she wearing a cocktail dress? It's such a good question. Why is she wearing a cocktail dress? And it's like in the middle of the day. It's just a, going it to is work. the middle of the day. She's going into the nerve facility. And I mean, like, you you know you're gonna have to put on you know, the wild dry fit. You're going to have to put on the wild dry fit uniform and the jacket soon enough. So why are you wearing... Why is she wearing a cocktail dress? I don't understand. <laughs> it's like, I don't get it. I don't understand. She's like in DC happy... Like DC 4 p.m. happy hour attire. Like, what is happening? <laughs> it's like Thursday. Fucking it's Congress th- is in recess. Double and she's just like up on a Tuesday. <laughs>